Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy? or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Jen Hatmaker is an evangelical leader who has made headlines for going public with her politics. We talk with Jen today about standing at the intersection of faith and politics. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are really looking forward to sharing our conversation with Jen Hatmaker with you. If you do not know who Jen Hatmaker is, she is a very respected, admired leader in the evangelical community. And she's taken a lot of heat really for the past two years for her independent thinking. She's been a leader on embracing same-sex marriage, and she has publicly denounced President Trump as 
not a representative of Christian values. And so even if you are not a particularly religious person, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a person of faith at all, I think that this conversation has something for everyone because it is really about going against the tide and doing what is right for you. So stick with us for that. But first, yes, we are going to talk about what happened at the White House Correspondents Association dinner even though there are lots of other things happening as the world turns. So the first thing I saw was Maggie Haberman's tweet, and I thought, what's that about? And then I put two and two together, and then I'm like, well, if Maggie Haberman is offended, then I should be offended. I'm just going to be honest. That's what I thought. But then I watched it, and I was not offended. Does that make me bad? If you are not keeping up with the Twitter drama about the White House Correspondents Association dinner, Michelle Wolf from The Daily Show with Trevor Noah was on. She did a couple of bits about Sarah Huckabee Sanders that caused Maggie Haberman and other, especially women journalists, to come to Sarah Huckabee Sanders' defense. The The main line that seems to have gotten everyone irked was Michelle Wolf saying that Sarah Huckabee Sanders burns facts and uses the ash to create a perfect smoky eye. Look, I think a lot of the people who are tweeting about this maybe didn't watch the entire bit because, you know, she said the smoky eye thing and and the Aunt Lydia thing from The Handmaid's Tale. I mean, she was very hard on Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She also talked about Mitch McConnell having a neck circumcision. She made a joke about Chris Christie's weight. Yeah, and he was, was there. It was not, to me, a totally sexist or zeroed in on Sarah Huckabee Sanders bit when you watch the entire thing. The most offensive part to me was the part about abortion. Because, listen, that's not a thing you should joke about. And it better be a really, really good joke. And it wasn't. And that, to me, was the part where I was like, yikes. But the rest of it, yeah, maybe because I read the reaction first. By the time I watched the, I thought she was just going to be like, reaming her for her appearance, Sarah Huckabee Sanders' appearance. And that is not what I felt like happened. I think that the reason we're all talking about this today is because Sarah Huckabee Sanders was within touching distance of her when she said it. And because Sarah Huckabee Sanders is a woman and because Michelle Wolf is a woman. That's why I really think we're talking about it. I just feel like if the the physical proximity of the two of them hadn't been so close, it wouldn't have been so uncomfortable to watch. Which tells you a lot, right? Kind of about where we are and what we care about. But the thing is that Stephen Colbert's was just as uncomfortable to watch. And it was the president of the United States sitting right next to him. But I think it's because there was two men. You didn't have the White House Correspondents Association issuing some, oh my gosh, we're so sorry, press release afterwards after that one. And I thought he was way tougher on the actual president who was sitting next to him. There's some weirdness going on with sort of the press in general. I'm struggling with all of the women journalists who have written this letter in defense of Tom Brokaw. Mm-hmm. I'm struggling with kind of this collective of women saying, don't talk about Sarah Huckabee Sanders like that. I'm not sure what it is, but I think there is a vibe of, listen, we're going to explain the world to you right now. And I don't think that's helpful at all to anyone. And I think there's just this protectionist, like Mika Brzezinski, like watching a wife and mother up there listening. Stop it. Don't do that, Mika. Don't do that. And especially like Mika Brzezinski of all people, like, no, you know what it's like when someone actually attacks your appearance, like when the president of the United States referenced your plastic surgery. That's actually something to get up in arms about. I don't know. I just, I guess because I, like I said, I read the, I heard the reaction first and I was prepared to like, 
come to Sarah Huckabee Sanders' defense, but I thought the jokes were really hard and that they were probably very difficult to set through. I thought she did a good job. Side note, thought she looked really great. And I just thought, like, I, I didn't I didn't get the like the reaction. The best thing I heard going to your point about the press in general was in the New York Times piece, they referenced Kyle Pope, the editor of the Columbia Journalism Review, and he said, the White House correspondence dinner debacle was inevitable, destined to be either syncophatic or one on one extreme or mean-spirited on the other. Neither is a good look at a time when trust in the media is tenuous. Can we finally all agree to put an end to this thing? I think that's probably the the most appropriate reaction. Like, there's kind of not a great way to do this because it's either going to be because of our sort of current environment, because it's immediate – where it used to be a dinner there and you maybe heard a news article about one or two jokes. Now you watch it. You can watch it all on YouTube and everybody gets to do their social media hot take. And it it turns the White House Correspondents Center into something I don't think it's supposed to be. And listen, it's kind of offensive to, again, this is like this elitist pat each other on the back situation. But I did not think that the the, the worst part of the dinner itself or even that bit was the jokes about Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I did not think they were targeted at her appearance either. and. I'll be honest. I laughed at a lot of it. I thought Michelle Wolf did a pretty funny job a lot of it. I thought the way she went after the press and was like, I really like CNN breaking news. Well, you did a good job. You did a good job. You broke it. I thought that was very funny. I thought that her just looking at him and being like, you you made this monster and now you make money off of him and you should live with that was really good, too. So I don't know. Comedy is hard to do well right now. Mm-hmm. I think Saturday Night Live is struggling because so much of what happens in the White House is just not funny. And there is not a way to do it and make it funny. It's depressing. It's it's bizarre. You know, it's easy to make fun of a White House that is functioning in a really serious way, right? Because then you bring a little levity to it. You can bring some critique and commentary. It's hard. It's just hard to do that with this White House. It really well, is. I think the problem is in our current environment, the way to make a really good joke is always going to be at the other expense. I mean, if you're doing really good comedy, it feels like truth to everyone, right? And that's why it's difficult to make a joke in this current environment because it's going to either feel like lecture porn on one side and moral condemnation on the other. You know, so it's not there's not a it, it's difficult, I think, to do it right where everybody get, where everybody's laughing because they're sort of like, oh, man, that is the truth. You know, I think that's a joke about politics that makes everyone laugh because it feels uncomfortably true to them is difficult right now. The worst thing I think about the Correspondents Association dinner in general, and I do not think this is about Michelle Wolf, but about the whole event, is that it absolutely reinforces that elitist snobbery the press is against the Trump administration thing, you know that Matt and Mercedes Schlapp could not wait to tweet that they walked out of the dinner. Mm -hmm. It's the best thing that will happen to them all year. And seeing a picture of April Ryan with Kellyanne Conway is, like, uncomfortable. It's just weird. On the one hand, I think, no, as uncomfortable as it feels, we need more things that forge relationships. Because a huge problem in our politics and our governance and in our press is an absence of relationships. On the other hand, it it also kind of looks like the smartest thing President Trump has done is skipping this dinner. Like I said, I think because of our current media environment, it's difficult for this to be what it's supposed to be, which, again, is not a great thing to begin with, which is sort of the elite slapping each other on the back. Although I don't want to bust on that because I do think there is room in Washington, D.C. for these to people to coexist in a social space and arguably creates a more 
workable environment when they coexist in a peaceable place, be that be bipartisan or between the media and the politicians. It's a small town. So, you know, I don't really want to jump on the bandwagon of look at them being all buddy-buddy. Like, Because I, I do think there's space for that in Washington, D.C. Like, these people are human beings who have to socialize together. Like, it's not going to be a war zone all the time. I don't think that's good for the American people either. You know, I think there's a lot of gendered reaction to this. I think there's a lot of gendered reaction, not just to Michelle Wolf and Sarah Huckabee Sanders, but to Michelle Wolf making some pretty crude jokes as a woman, which I'm here for. That's my favorite kind of comedy right now. Women who just push the boundaries all the way in that direction, but are funny because you can't just be crude to be crude. That's not funny. And I thought she was funny. I did. I thought a lot of her jokes were really good. The percentage of jokes that made me laugh overall to the the length of the set and the, the setting of the event Pretty solid. And I hate that she's the first one that gets this association condemnation. I think that's gendered as well. And, you know, I think she did a good job. And I think good job for Sarah Huckabee Sanders. If anybody thinks watching Sarah Huckabee Sanders at this point that something like this (laughs) is going to shake her, I don't think you've been watching her very closely. She seems pretty unshakable. I think that's kind of her biggest strength. So I'm ready to move on. I'll be honest. I have one more thing that I want to say about this. Sarah Huckabee Sanders endures some very brutal criticism of her looks. I don't think this was it, but she does. Mm -hmm. And I think that that happens because we do not know what to do with a woman who is not a size two. Mm. And as a woman who is not a size two, I just want to say that I think this would be a good time for us to put away – the physicality jokes. I mean that on Chris Christie's half, behalf as well. And Mitch McConnell's. Look, I don't think it's funny to make fun of adults' looks. I don't think it's funny to do it, it with kids. I think it's gross. I do not think it's bullying. I just think it's mean-spirited and silly and something that we can do better than. Mm. And so I would like us to stop that. I would also like to note, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot, Sarah Huckabee Sanders absolutely steps up to the podium and says things that are not true and makes the Mm -hmm. press jeopardizes a free press by the way she handles that position. I don't know that she has a choice if she is going to do that job because I don't think Donald Trump would allow anything else. It is also her choice to do that job every day. She is an adult. So all of those things exist together for me. Mm -hmm. At the same time, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is like, in her mid-30s, and she has small children, and she's a woman doing a job that men have done for a long time. Some women have done it too, but much older women than her. It is frustrating to me, and I think this is why the joke about disappointing other women landed so hard. Mm. It is frustrating to me that we can't be having a conversation about how terrific it is to see someone youngish who raises young children serving her government in this way, (laughs) you know? And so... And I don't mean that as a criticism of everyone not rallying around her. I mean, the whole situation makes me mad. It makes me mad that we have somebody who, in a lot of other circumstances, would embody so many things that we haven't seen that we need to see in our government. It makes me mad that a woman poking fun at this other woman's appearance, if she did, I'm not sure. I didn't read the joke that way. I just I didn't, didn't read it as an assault on her appearance. But if you did, that's fine. Comedy is subjective. What you find funny is different than what, I mean, I didn't think she was that funny, but comedy is subjective. So that's fine. We don't have to have a big fight about that. 
I just am sad, kind of. Overall, my feeling about Sarah Huckabee Sanders is sadness. I'm sad about what's happening with the press. I'm sad about the way America still doesn't know what to do with a woman who has any size whatsoever, you know, and I'm sad that we are dealing with this you know, today, when we could be talking about Iran and all kinds of things happening in the world that are really important, we're kind of uncomfortable because the scathing critique came from a woman and was lobbed at a woman sitting a couple seats down from her. You know what it is? I don't mind. Like, I would happily sit down with, like, members of my book club and talk about Sarah Huckabee Sanders and, you know, how her appearances, everything you just talked about, happily discuss that with them. I don't want to hear Andrea Mitchell tweet about it. I'm just be really honest. Like, this is not, I'm tired of even women in the media and women in politics getting these, like, shooting off these hot takes and acting like that's a nuanced conversation around something really important to all women. That's what bothers me about this. Like, if we want to have a real conversation, like, I might even arguably listen to the women on The View have a, a more extended conversation about this. But the idea of, like, the, the the hot takes from the women in the media and the women in politics and Mike Huckabee himself and the Tide podcast comment, just keep it to yourself. Like, that's not helpful. That's not pushing this conversation forward when there's room to push it forward on both sides from Sarah Huckabee Sanders' perspective and from Michelle Wolf's perspective. That's what bothers me about this. Well, in the vein of something that does push conversation forward, there is a fantastic opinion piece about Me Too and Charlie Rose's comeback in the New York Times that we will link in the show notes. I thought this was the most nuanced perspective on the idea of what do we do after we have kind of taken down a powerful man that I've seen. Yeah. Katie J.M. Baker, she writes for BuzzFeed. I think she used to write for Jezebel, did a really good piece where she talked about her history with college sexual assault and sort of watching um, what happened to male students accused or convicted or kicked out of college because of sexual assault. Um, and herself going through this journey of thinking, but but what happens to them? Because what do we want to happen to them? It's not, I agree that it's not the victim's responsibility, but like whose responsibility is it? And she talks about profiling some of these young men. And this is the quote that really stuck out to me. At first, I thought they didn't want me to participate in campus activities, one told me. Then I thought they don't, they didn't want me to graduate. Now they don't want me to have a job or be part of society. They Do they want me to commit suicide? Is that what they want me to do? What is the end game? And I thought that was so powerful. The idea of what is the end game? And look, it's not one end game. The end game for a Bill Cosby or a Harvey Weinstein is not what we're talking about with an end game for even a Louis C.K. or a Charlie Rose or an Aziz Ansari or a young man at college. Like, so let's not, let's everybody be cool. We're not talking about one thing here. But I do think it is a question worth asking because there is, there has been some powerful othering going on in these conversations about the men who are responsible for a spectrum of heinous behavior, but they are still human beings. And I think the conversation of what, you know, that's how you end up with child pedophiles, convicted child pedophiles camped out under a highway in Florida because they've, they're, they're zoned out of every neighborhood. Is that, our, is that what we want? Because I don't think it is. I don't think it benefits anybody and I just thought she did a really good job of not necessarily presenting one answer or any answers, but just saying, I think we got to think about this. It's a question we've been asking in lots of contexts. This is the mm -hmm. whole question behind criminal justice reform. Yep. 
what what are we trying to accomplish here? If we're just mm-hmm. locking people away forever or we're locking them away for such a long time and then bringing them back into society but saying you can't be employed, you can't vote, you can't participate in any meaningful way, what's the end game of that? When you talk about, Sarah, that politically speaking, do you expect everyone to just leave America who disagrees with you? What's your end game here? And mm-hmm. I think this is... This is a very gutsy way to present that question because we're still so close to the moment of finally calling these behaviors out as wrong and intolerable. But it is a really important follow-up question. Even in a business, what do you do after something like this has happened? Mm -hmm. And if the the answer is the business moves on and the person floats to another business – I mean, in some ways I read this article and I thought this calls out for – Education. She talks about restorative justice, which I think is a really important conversation to have. It it feels eye-rolly to say that there needs to be some kind of version of rehab, but I think there does. And I think that'll take a lot of different forms for different people, and it depends a, a lot on sort of the severity of what occurred. But we do need to start answering that question because people aren't just going to fall off the face of the earth and we shouldn't want them to. Right. And I, for me, you know, my, my personal values in my life, one of them is I don't throw away human beings, no matter how heinous their behavior. I don't do that. Now that doesn't mean that I don't believe someone belongs in jail, but I try not to speak about anyone as if they deserve to be discarded because I have personal values that believe in forgiveness and redemption, and those are not always easy things. If they were easy, they wouldn't be worth doing. And they are often harder and exercises for ourselves, more important for ourselves than they are for the other person. But the thing about it is, is everyone's personal values are not going to be the same. Like, we're all not going to come to the same. We're not all going to sit down as Americans and be like, this is what we think should happen to rapists. Like, that's never going to happen. That's cool. But... We need everyone at the table to say, look, because we need people that say that believe in redemption. We need people that believe in punishment. We need the same sort of gas and brakes we have in all these conversations. I just think that we get in a space where we're not even willing to talk about it. And that I don't think is beneficial to anyone. And to be clear, this opinion piece, and I think both of us would agree, says Charlie Rose is doing this wrong. Like, mm-hmm. you shouldn't be profiting off your transgressions. You shouldn't be co- mounting a comeback like, okay, my feelings were hurt, and now I'm going to come back, and I'm going to do it in a way that is sort of about redemption but is also about the spotlight. No, that's not what we're saying. We're no. not applauding that. I don't ever want to hear Matt Lauer's voice again in my life, and I don't. I think I can say that without feeling like I want to discard Matt Lauer as a human being. I don't. I just want to discard him as a media figure. That I'm done with. But that doesn't mean that I want Matt Lauer to commit suicide. No, I do not want that either. And I also don't want Matt Lauer on my television. But those are choices that networks are going to have to make. And the public is going to have to kind of vote with our viewership and our dollars around those things. And that's okay. That's how it should work. Are you ready to compliment the other side? I am. I wanted to compliment Senator Ben Cardin today of Maryland. He is on the Foreign Relations Committee, has made a number of public statements lately about the Iran agreement and about Ben Cardin, to be clear, as a Democrat, was not in favor of the Iran agreement when it was negotiated. And now he says, but we did it. And it's important that we 
abide by it. And it's important that we do not isolate ourselves as part of the international community. And it's important that we be honest about the fact that Iran is living by the agreement. And I think he, he's just doing a very nuanced job of saying what's responsible for America in this moment. You might think it was an imperfect agreement, but we have it. So what is the responsible thing to do from here? And in connection with this compliment, I want to flag for you a piece from The Atlantic that we'll put in the show notes that explains how the Trump administration is likely violating the Iran agreement that Iran has not, but America probably has. And the entire piece talks about America's credibility in the world and how important it is for Americans, individual Americans, you and me, to understand that we might feel like we get taken advantage of or we might feel that we are the moral authority in the world. Here's what the world sees from us sometimes, too. And it's it's just really, really well done. I really like Ben Cardin. I have not always liked Trey Gowdy, but that is who I'm complimenting today. Um, I really like soon-to-be-retired Trey Gowdy. He's on this honesty streak, and I'm here for it. He said that he believed there were accusations against Ronnie Jackson that deserved investigation by Congress, but then delineated some he didn't, which I agreed with. He said, you don't want members of Congress determining when someone needs Ambien and when they don't. I agree with that. And But he said that there were important things there that deserved to be investigated. And, you know, like I said, I'm just here for new Trey Gowdy. I like Trey Gowdy version 2.0. That Ronnie Jackson story could be a whole podcast. Maybe we'll do mm. that sometime, but not today. Because not today. we're going to be sharing our interview with Jen Hatmaker about her faith, politics, and why, as she says, Jesus always gets his way. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. 
That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash pantsuit. Jen Hatmaker is a New York Times bestselling author, speaker, blogger, and leader in the evangelical community. What began as a life in ministry with her husband, Brandon, grew and grew until it included speaking tours and a show on HGTV. In April of 2016, she posted a Facebook post that called for the full inclusion of LGBTQ people in the Christian community, saying, One thing I said was that it is high time Christians opened wide their arms, wide their churches, wide their tables, wide their homes to the LGBT community. So great has our condemnation and exclusion been that gay Christian teens are seven times more likely to commit suicide. Nope, nope, no ma'am, not on my watch, no more. This is so far outside the gospel of Jesus that I don't even recognize its reflection. I can't, I won't, I refuse. Condemnation was swift and included the Christian bookstore Lifeway stating they would no longer carry Jen's book. On her blog, she shared how heartbreaking being on the outside of the Christian community was. Jen wrote, This year I became painfully aware of the machine, the Christian machine. I saw with clear eyes the systems and alliances and coded language and brand protection that poison the simple, beautiful body of Christ. I saw how it all works, not as an insider where I've enjoyed protection and favor for two decades, but from the outside where I was no longer welcome. The burn of mob mentality scorched my heart into ashes, and it is still struggling to function, no matter how darling and funny I ever appear. The internet makes that charade easy. In October of 2016, in an interview with Religion News and on her Belong Tour, she repeatedly criticized Donald Trump and the Christian leaders who supported him. And in an interview in Politico, she shared how the death threats and condemnation from her own small Texas town left her shaken and feeling defeated. We sat down to talk with Jen about all of this, politics, religion, the intersection of the two, and how they play out publicly and privately. Jen, we are so happy that you're here and have read with interest all of the posts about you that touch on politics. And I first wanted to ask you how it feels to be written about Mm -hmm. in a political context. 
Mm. Um, thank you for now. First of all, thank you for having me on. You guys are both amazing. I love what you do. I love your space. Second of all, thank you for acknowledging that that's some weirdness. Like, <laughs> that is some weirdness. I mean, when my mother-in-law is like, um, an article came up about you in my CNN app. I'm like, I do not know what to say. Just keep on going. Scroll on. Past. Um, it, it feels surprising. Mm. Obviously that this is not where I struck out. It's not where I made my mark. It's not, it, it's not my background. It's not, um, it, it's not my educational experience. And so I almost find myself kind of a reluctant mouthpiece apparently for, um, politics in the last year and a half. And so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of surprised by it still. Uh, and it can be a little, I worry sometimes that I feel out of my depth. Mm-hmm. Um, but frankly, I think I found my way to this space simply by being vocal, which in our, I guess, Christian subculture is rare in this mm-hmm. space. Um, and so I thought I was going to look sideways and find an army of people, you know, locking arms with me saying, well, we're obviously going to have to lend our voice here. And instead I found a lot of crickets and <laughs> that was like a, that was an empty field. So I think I'm by default getting put into these spaces because there's just not that many of us. Yeah. I loved so much your sharing of, and I'm just going to use the churchy word for it, testimony and braving the wilderness for mm. Brown's new book. Cause Thank I you. thought, you know what? I don't know a, a more intense, intimidating wilderness than the wilderness that would intersect with politics and religion. Oh man. Oh my gosh. The wilderness is the right word for that, isn't it? mm -hmm. Uh, Cause that is such a, that's the space we're not, those are the two things we're not supposed to talk about. If you just started sharing your salary, that might've just, you'd have hit all three. (laughs) That's so right. Um, throw in a little gun control and it's just a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're, you're so right. I, um, it feels, it has felt, um, a little lonely Mm. and, um, a little bit intimidating. And I tend to be, I tend to be glass half full to an extreme. That's not great. Uh, Mm. it can be also, it can be almost naive. Um, I'm kind of uh, constantly assuming the best. I'm also thinking, uh, that in general, I've had this sense, I, I bet most of us are kind of in agreement here. You know, I, I, there's, I don't think there's any way we can look at this thing on paper and not be in agreement on it. Like this, mm-hmm. this is catastrophically awful and mm-hmm. surely we're going to more or less be in the same space. That's hasn't been true. Um, <laughs> that apparently is not true. I guess we diverge now on Mm -hmm. things that we used to agree upon, um, morally, ethically. And so it was, it was shocking to discover that that space was a wilderness. I thought it was going to, I didn't expect that. Um, I, I thought just on basis of our shared faith, even all over the map, I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. of course there's a lot of slivers to that pie chart, but I thought in in general, we're going to be able to look at one another and go, that's bad. Like yeah. we, we can't stand by that, but that's not how it turned out. Yeah. Having spent as much time as you've spent now in that wilderness, what have you gleaned about why it is so? Why do people stay out of that space? And why do you think we're diverging on things that seem obvious? 
it's a loaded question. And I think it has more than one answer. Mm. I can see now certainly why people steer clear. Mm. Uh, it, it's, it's so charged. Uh, I, it's so, um, it's such an ace and it's, it's deeply locked in and tied into all these other things underneath it. So, um, it, it is, it's connected to our identity. It's connected to our geography. Um, it's connected to our denominational affiliations. And then ultimately it's connected to, um, sort of our, the marriage of sort of evangelicalism and the Republican party. And so it's, it's deep. I mean, there's some really, it, it's a nation there, but that I think when you touch on that nerve, you know, when you, when you touch that rail, Mm. It sets off such an electric shock. So I completely understand now being on the other side of it while people go, no, thank you. <laughs> like <laughs> you guys fight it out. Like I, I don't want to be in this space because all of a sudden you realize how polarized your own community is um, when you perhaps thought you were a little bit more aligned. I, I, that's my guess. I, I, I think we have made this conversation very challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't see a lot of nuance um, respected. We don't, we don't see a lot of dialogue prioritized. We don't see, we rarely see really good listening skills. Um, and so because everything is just a hot take, you know, because Mm -hmm. everything is outrage and, um, it, it, it makes it a very unsafe space to come in with your voice. And so, I mean, only the strong survive out here. It just feels like <laughs> Lord of the flies, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and what we talk about all the time, you know, our book is a, a guide to pol- grace-filled political conversation. And when you say grace-filled political conversation, people kind of look at you like the dog that doesn't understand the command you've just given them. Like, what, you, huh? What do you, what what do you mean? Uh-huh. Yeah, what I want to understand what you're talking about. And because it, it takes practice. It takes practice to have those conversations and to learn what conflict sounds like, that you can look at this person who you love, disagree, and wake up the next day. The world keeps spinning. But Nobody we don't dies. we've forgotten that. Yeah, we don't oh. we don't understand. We Beth says all the time, like people write us and say, Well, you don't disagree. And she's like, Yes, we do, but you don't know what like just honest relationship prioritizing disagreement looks like. You That's think right. we should be screaming at each other. Like right. people it it's just so hard to convey, like it is hard and it yeah. is difficult, but if you do it enough it's a space of growth and it's a space of self-awareness. I mean, what did you learn about yourself? It's really good. Yeah, that's really, really good. To your point, I I think that practice is increasingly rare because Mm -hmm. it is suggested to us both externally and internally that we are all and other people must be, you know, all bad or all good. So there is this sense that if we disagree on something that feels fundamental or it feels important, it's going to be upon me to just write you off as a human. Like there Mm -hmm. is no, I guess there's nothing to see here. And that's, Mm -hmm. it's just such an immature, lazy approach to conversation and to dialogue. And, and honestly, if that is the case, then we just all need to throw in the towel. There's not a conversation possible. And so I do think I, I love your approach. I love your posture to say, we actually do disagree on this thing. And it might even be a big thing. 
I mean, mm-hmm. it, it might even have serious consequences. It does not mean that everything about you is terrible. It doesn't mean that you and I cannot remain in relationship. And it doesn't mean that we can't actually have this conversation. Um, but because that's not what we see modeled hardly anywhere, um, it, 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 it comes with a more like all or nothing um, approach. Well, I guess we're just going to be enemies. You know, mm-hmm. I guess I'll just block you and we'll never mm-hmm. try this again. And um, I think we're doomed. I think we're absolutely doomed. And so what I learned about myself sort of in this last year and a half, I learned that um, I, I, I sort of came in, I steered into this conversation from a place of more or less goodwill in the public more or less. I, I enjoyed favor and I was sort of universally liked and <laughs> I'm funny. Ha, she's funny. She makes us laugh. You know, she's, she's nice. Um, and I sort of came into it from this, um, centered spot in Christian subculture. And so among other things, not just my sort of um, vocal resistance to sort of the Trump administration, but some of my other theology too, to find myself on the outside of that circle of winners um, (laughs) and instead to be in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. um, I thought, golly, I don't want to be dramatic, but that has never stopped me a day in my life. Um, (laughs) I thought it might kill me. There were some days I thought, I'm not going to make it. Like, I I can't Mm -hmm. survive this. I can't handle this. This is too much sorrow. It is too much loss. It is too much attention. Um, I I just, I'm not built for it. And Mm -hmm. I thought that it was probably going to be the end of, certainly of my career, Mm -hmm. um, maybe of my heart and soul. And so now Mm -hmm. a year and a half later, more or less, I have learned that I was way too codependent on um, public opinion, mm-hmm. that that occupied way too high a space um, in my priorities, um, in, in the sort of input that was creating who I was and how I was working and why. And so um, to discover that I can stand on what for me feels like principle, Mm-hmm. And what, in my estimation, is just I guess just doing the right thing, how it feels to mm-hmm. me, and live, mm-hmm. and live to tell, live in the wilderness, and even begin to thrive there. Um, it's been very, very powerful, and I'm learning, I'm learning to listen less to all of it, not just mm-hmm. all the uh, the criticism, but also all the praise. Cause it all, oh, yeah. it, it's just flip side of the same coin. Right. It's just, it's too much weight on what somebody else is thinking of me. And so that's been great. I'm grateful for that. Honestly, I am thankful for that sort of purging, but man, was it ever, it was a rough road. It was a rocky that road. That is amazing. I have heard, I've heard Hillary Clinton and Oprah say similar, because mm-hmm. I think there's just a, there's a level of attention in which you learn the good is, it's just a different side of the bad. You cannot buy the good. You cannot buy. I've heard them both say very similar things. Cause I think there's a, 
a strength of the spotlight where you learn that very profoundly that you learn like how much of my identity is wrapped up in this. And that's hard. It is hard. hard. And it was more than I thought. It was Mm. more than I thought it was. I I would have um, underestimated that in advance. No, no, that's not really what I work for. That's not my motivation. That's not uh, my fuel. But then when it was pulled out, when it was, when it was gone, I realized how deeply my identity was tied to being liked. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly to being respected that, that mm-hmm. to me was the worst, uh, to feel as if my faith was disrespected. My obedience mm. was disrespected. My love of God and scriptures was disrespected. Uh, that, that to me was just, that was the jugular. Mm. You know, Jen, I heard Elizabeth Gilbert talking about how few examples we have of women going through the hero's journey. And as Mm. you're describing this, it sounds to me like you're living out your hero's journey. Like this Mm. wilderness has been sort of that dark night of the soul to to kind of give you the tools that you need for the next part of the journey. Is that how you think about it for yourself? I love that take on it. I I love that positive look. And, And honestly, that's what I believe. That's what that's what my faith has always taught me, mm-hmm. you know, that, that sort of, it's a just refining fires do exactly that. They refine you, you come out stronger, a little bit more pure, um, ready for the long haul. It's funny to know something on paper and then to have to experience it in life and have to put your money where your mouth is and trust, right. trust sort of the arc of what you believe that that first half of the arc is hard. And, Mm. um, but yeah, I do. I, um, at the risk of overstating it, kind of feel like where I'm sitting right now is the, the beginning of the whole next leg of the race. Mm. So I feel like I have completed the first leg in the way and in the space that it was handed to me. I did that as, as, as best as I could. But I now think that it's a, it's, I'm turning a corner. I'm not even exactly sure what that means, but I sense Mm -hmm. it. I feel it in the, obviously the way that I'm leading, but also who I'm leading. And it's exciting. It's exciting. Like if you, if I'd have been sitting here talking to you girls one year ago, um, in April of last year, it was still just so dark. It was so dark. Um, and so I'm so grateful to see what a difference in another year makes and to realize that the wilderness isn't terrible. Mm. It's not terrible. It just felt that way when you're a city dweller your whole life, you know, <laughs> it's safer in there. It's got yeah. the walls, it's fortified. It's, it's kind there's of protected. Water. <laughs> yeah. There's running water. Like everybody inside's kind of privileged in the same way, you know? Right. And so the wilderness just seems scary, but I'm finding it incredibly vibrant there's a lot of life out there and there are a lot of people out there that I, uh, I identify with and I feel so connected to and compassionate towards. And so I think, you know, I think my next leg of the race is in the wilderness and I'm looking forward to it. I, I, I'm, I'm ready for it. I think at this point. So here's my question to you as you know, a leader in the Christian community and definitely still in my eyes. So I feel like when you were talking before about that, we see things, we see this conflict in a black and white hero villain way. If I'm being honest with myself, 
um, you know, growing up in the Baptist church now in the Episcopal church, like there's so much of religion that contributes to that, that tells people this is the, this is how the world is. The world is evil and good and you have to break it down and battle against it. When now with my, like a new journey in my faith, like I see like so much of the teaching of Christ can be such a positive influence on politics. So like what also we're talking about in our podcast a lot recently is like, we don't other people. We don't mm. other, even Donald Trump, we don't treat them as less than so, human because that is the source of all evil. And that's there's good. like those, that is the teachings of Christ to say that we are connected. That was revolutionary when the ever like 75% of the world's population was still slaves. You know, like, so, so I just, I, how do we get back to that being a source? Uh, instead of saying everybody go to their separate corners mm. and we'll keep politics and religion totally separate or saying it, it fueling this, this binary terrible outlook how do we get back to it being a, a, a good source of political discourse for fueling a values-driven political discourse how do we get back there or were we ever there i guess well that's a good question were we ever there i'm not sure mm. um but how do we get back there is an important question i'm glad you're asking it and um and i think it's possible there's that dogged hope that I just refuse to let go of. Like I'm some sort of dumb, dumb, you know, like <laughs> all evidence to the contrary. I'm so like, it can happen. Uh, we can do it. Um, but I, my suspicion is that the path back to one another, just as human people, just as human beings who have a lot of different experiences and ideas and theology and, that's always been true. There's nothing new about that. You know, we're not the first generation to sort of be all over the map. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I suspect that I don't think we can trust our leaders right now. They are not showing us that they are capable of nuance. They are not mm -hmm. showing us that they are able to forge any sort of bipartisan space at all in any meaningful way. Um, the way that we see even our president talk about people, the names he calls them. I, mean, I just don't trust any of them. I don't trust mm -hmm. a lot of them. I think, I think they're so entrenched in their systems and spaces. So I, I suspect that we will start turning the tides like this. I think it's going to be around our tables. I think it's mm -hmm. going to be um, in our actual families. I think it's going to be when we decide that, we're not going to subscribe to this binary assessment of everybody around us, but rather we're going to, we're going to go into the belly of the beast. We are going to say, let's sit down and hear one another out. So I think it's going to be, in other words, on the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I suspect that we're going to have to be responsible here and not wait for our representatives and our leaders to get their crap together and start mm -hmm. acting like grownups Mm -hmm. um, I think it's going to have to be us. And I think the space that you're creating sets a marvelous example, just marvelous. Because as you said, you know, people write to you and go, this isn't possible, but then they listen to you. Mm -hmm. They listen to the conversations that you broker, that you host and you realize, Oh my God, it is, this is literally possible. Mm -hmm. It is possible to still be principled across a spectrum and still be kind yeah. And still um, acknowledge and prioritize somebody's humanity across from you. And so um, I, I don't think we get to just uh, pass the buck on this one. I think this belongs to all of us.
You know, as you were talking about the immaturity and sort of the laziness with which we approach our political discussions, it made me think about a lesson that I learned from my parents at a young age about the church. My parents were always critical of people and you know, we, I grew up in Kentucky that we would say who up and left church <laughs> yes. because they got mad about something. Yes. And the lesson from my parents was always, we are the church. We can't up and leave because we're mad about something because we are the church. The church isn't a thing that we consume. We're responsible for it. And so when you're mad about something, it's your obligation to stay and fix it and work through it. And I keep thinking about that in relation to our democracy, especially because of what you just said. We are the government. That's right. We are all participants. We are all responsible for this. And so I wonder how we can help people who are are feeling the way that the three of us are feeling right now about what's happening with our leadership. How can we feel more empowered to be the government, to not up and leave? by becoming apathetic or not voting or turning, turning it off, whatever. Mm -hmm. How do we feel empowered to step up and and be what we want? It is tempting, isn't it? Just to walk (laughs) away. Yeah. It is so tempting just to wash our hands of it and go, golly, maybe somebody else will fix this. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe somebody else will fight the fight and do the work because it is work. This is Mm -hmm. not, it's not a super easy road, I think in front of us. Um, and so I, I, what I think of a lot, and admittedly, I'm in a position of leadership. So I, you know, I have a lot of watching eyes and listening ears. So I, I don't ever get the luxury of just thinking of myself alone. I, I mm-hmm. kind of have to think about the, the tribe um, and, and who I lead. But oh, ironically, that is what motivates me. So when I, and this can come down on a, just absolutely a personal individual level too. It's my neighbor that compels me. So when I, when I get, when I'm tempted just to be like, this is garbage. This is a dumpster fire. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't, I don't want you to write any more articles about me. I don't Mm -hmm. want to, I don't want this. Dang it. It's my neighbor. And I keep thinking about my neighbor and the neighbor who is, at the end of some of this rhetoric, at the end of some of this policy, it's mm-hmm. not just empty words. It is affecting people. It affects people's lives. It's, it's deeply destabilizing for a lot of my friends in this community. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, you know, we're here in central Texas. We are, our, uh, our county is about 60% Hispanic and we have just seen it wreak so much havoc in mm-hmm. the lives of our neighbors and in our kids' peers what they're now walking into their classrooms with the fear, the worry. Um, and so just when I think I want to walk away, I, cause I get to, I'm white, mm-hmm. I'm privileged. I have money. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the least affected here. Mm-hmm. I, I could walk and more or less carry on with my life. But when I think about my neighbors who don't get to do that mm-hmm. and and, and this, this political climate is doing them real harm, either in policy and practice or in the sort of rhetoric that now has permission to live in the open in our culture, dehumanizing people, 
casting some sort of black cloud over who they are and who their communities are. I can't, I can't walk from that. And so I think about your listeners um, who also might be like, ugh, not for me, pass. Mm-hmm. But if, if, if by our faith, if our faith compels us, that, that apparently, you know, according to Jesus, we basically have two big ideas on this earth, and it's to love him and to love people. That's literally it. He said that, I'm just going to sum it up for you. That's it. Mm-hmm. Love me and love people. I, I just, I think we have to stay in, which is why we need to learn from you. It's why we need to listen to your best practices. It's why we need to understand that dialogue is possible and ultimately change is possible. This is not hopeless. Right. You know, this is, this is not just a, uh, just a burning fire that will never end. And so I still feel hopeful. And I think if we love one another enough, it'll keep, it'll keep us in the game. Well, and I wonder what are the roles of the church and faith leaders specifically in teaching us how to do that? Because, you know, one of my, what I thought was so empowering of watching your journey is that it it did force dialogue in a community that hasn't always been great at it. And to see somebody say, no, I disagree about this interpretation. I disagree about this politics. I think my faith and compels my politics. They are related. We're not just going to either agree and then not talk about it or agree to not talk about it. Like we will have this conversation. Like what role do you see faith leaders and the church as saying, as being less top down and being more ground up and say, we're going to have a conversation about our faith and our politics. And it's not just going to be a decree from on high. I think that's great. I, um, we are super connected to just the church world. You know, we still lead a church here in Austin and thus we're connected to a lot of pastors and Mm -hmm. pastoral leadership. And, you know, what we hear is that they don't want to touch any of this with a 10 foot pole, you know, that when they do, if they even get on the edges of it, it's such an uproar. And this is also regional. This is all specific. It can go both ways. Like some of our liberal progressive pastors, um, you know, theirs goes one way. And then some of our conservative pastors, it goes the other. It doesn't matter. Both sides in the congregation can be equally outraged. Um, And so I think it's going to require a real double dose of both courage to say, this is going to be a, this is going to have some tension inside of it. Mm-hmm. This is going to, this is not going to just be another easy sermon on marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and also humility. It's the humility that I think is going to do the thing. I think oh, that's the deal. Yeah. I think that's the deal. When I, when I am listening right now to leaders who are willing to walk us through some of this, who are willing to open up a space Um, where we can sort of enter in from whichever point we are coming. It's their humility that invites me. And it's definitely their humility that keeps me Um, Mm -hmm. because I think, well, this is safe. This is not somebody who is simply um, has a, a drummed beat and, um, and and they're just, it's sort of a faux dialogue. 
Um, but I think it's this humility. And I, I was just speaking at a conference, a writer's conference last weekend, and um, they were kind of asking something similar, like, how do we, um, how do we manage this culture as leaders? And I said, one of the approaches that I think is imperative that we take is just simply this posture that I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Just that. I think I could be wrong. It's very powerful. Uh, and the flip side, you could be right. Yeah. Um, just that, that, that keeps dialogue moving forward. That yeah. keeps people coming in saying it might be possible for me to speak my piece here and not be burned at the stake for it, mm-hmm. you know, or be kicked out of the community. Yeah. Um, I, you could be, you could be right. I think our leaders right now, specifically our pastors need to be courageous and humble. Who wants yeah. tension? I get it. Nobody wants to manage the tension of your church. And um, because there's in within the Christian culture, there's so many other things you can talk about that cause no tension, right? Mm-hmm. That's just easy. I can do Christian tropes all day long. Literally, I know how to, I know how to be Christian popular. Uh, yeah. It's so easy. Um, uh, there's a whole list of um, sort of prescribed and preordained topics and words and language. And if you just stick with them, mm-hmm. you're going to get a million claps and all the retweets in the world. I mean, they're easy. Um, but I, I just, I think the times, I think our times call for more than that. I don't, yeah. I don't think we get to press the easy button here and, yeah. and just sort of preserve for the sake of tension. You know, MLK taught us so much about that, you know, that, mm-hmm. that, that's not that the absence of peace is not peace. That is just self-preservation. I, and I think too, like we're learning, you know, I was l- listening to a, I was reading a local elected officials. I'm a commissioner in my hometown. And it was talking about how the way people interact with democracy has changed. It's no longer, we tell you what to do, you do it. And you just sort of decree from your position as elected leader. And now people really want to participate. They want to be involved in the decision-making. And that's that form of leadership is changing. And I had the most interactive, interesting interaction on Facebook. I can't wait to tell you about this woman said, I'm looking for a church. And who do you like your church? And about eight people said, Oh, I love my, yes, my pastor's awesome. My pastor's awesome. My pastor's awesome. And my family's awesome. And their family's awesome. It was like six people. And then I said, I'm a little different. I'm an Episcopal. It's not really about the pastor. Um, I really like the liturgy. I really like that. I'm in this communal act with churches all over across the country, blah, blah, blah. And the girl messaged me. was like, Oh my God, I'm so glad you said that. That's exactly what I was looking for. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is happening in the church. People want to participate. Mm-hmm. They don't want to just, and that's what you, you didn't do that. You didn't come down and say, I have a decree. You said, here's what I'm thinking. Anybody want to yeah. pull up to the table and have this conversation with me? Yeah. And I think that's what people are hungry for. They're hungry for it in government. They're hungry for it yeah. in the church. They don't want to be bossed. They want to participate in the conversation. But the problem is, we forgot that conversation involves conflict inherently. Mm, that's so good. I like that connection to sort of what people want out of church in a mm-hmm. super similar way. I think you're absolutely right. We see that in our community for sure. Um, yeah. You know, we knew just to use your example, coming back down to just our, our church, our little local church here in Austin, that it, it would be super easy to sort of have a um, cult of personality, if mm-hmm. you can imagine, mm-hmm. in our church with two hat makers at the helm. <laughs> you know, we uh, we're, sometimes we could suck the oxygen out of the room. And so, you know, we knew right away, we 
this is a teaching team scenario. We are, Mm -hmm. we have a huge rotation through our pulpit and we never say who's who. So there's not a, you don't get to come to church because you want to hear Jen Hatmaker preach. You may Mm -hmm. not, you probably won't. So, um, but rather we, our church lives and breathes in our small spaces, in our small groups, in our homes, mm-hmm. around all of our tables. And that's just real. I mean, that isn't, um, it's sort of church leadershipy to say that, you know, that's yeah. of course what you hear at any church leadership conference, but that is actually true for us. So, um, I think the sort of decentralized idea mm-hmm. that you're speaking about is very, very powerful. And it's actually a relief for us in leadership. Really, for oh, all bet. of us who are leading, you girls are leading too. The way that we lead in some way that it's no longer upon us like it might have been 25 or 30 years ago to be the center of every faith community, to have all the answers, to be the absolute final voice on theology, on doctrine, on interpretation, um, on, on practices and orthodoxy and orthopraxy. I mean, once upon a time, it was just like that. The pastor was the center of the bullseye. It, how wonderful that, that, that we're moving away from that terrible paradigm, because the truth is that much power, that much attention, um, that much control and that much esteem, it's terrible for us. It's just Mm -hmm. terrible for us. Even really good hearted people who mean well, and they come into it with the best of intentions. We're just not designed to be that important. We're Mm. not that outsized in the scope of a faith community. Mm -hmm. And so obviously we can apply this to government too. I mean, it's not hard to look around and see what power does. Um, And so I, I find this very hopeful. I love this conversation. I love the idea of spreading out the ideas and widening out the table where one voice isn't so much more important than all the others around the table. That's just not how Jesus designed his kingdom. Mm. We kind of, we, we like that, but I don't think that's the way he designed us to optimize. Absolutely. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. 
Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Everything that you're saying, I think aligns so closely with the life and teachings of Jesus. Jesus didn't do the Christian tropes or pressing. Not that there were Christian tropes then, but he could have done the easy thing, the popular thing that would have gotten his day's equivalent of the retweets, Mm -hmm. right? And and chose not to. In that regard, one of the last things I want to ask you, I love how you embrace yourself as a leader. And I think that is a transformative thing for a woman in the Christian community. I can't adequately describe what a big deal it's been for me to be in a church led by a woman pastor. I would love to know about your journey uh, embracing that for yourself and being the authority figure that you really are, even as we reconfigure what it means to be an authoritative leader. uh, How have you come to own that? Hmm. So... Let me tell you a little story. Um, a handful of years ago, I, I, you know, I didn't set out to do this. I, I, this wasn't always my dream. I didn't have big goals at the end of this. I was a teacher, you know, I taught fourth grade. So this, I don't know what's, I still don't know what's happening, but, um, (laughs) um, a few years ago I was in a room with a dozen people and they were all deeply invested in, in my career. So this is a room of people with enthusiasm and big ideas. And, um, they're, they're developing forward. They're thinking about dreams and visions and, and how to sort of how, how that I can best position in leadership. Um, as a, so here I sit at the table, all these people are there for me. I am bawling. I, I, I cannot, I just can't, I can't get on top of it. I can't receive it. It's too scary. Mm-hmm. Right. I I'm 
I know myself. It doesn't matter what I look like on the line. I know who I am. I know my own faults. I know my own fears. I know where I'm completely off the rails. I'm like, this is a terrible idea. Um, (laughs) Who told you this was a good idea? And so they're dreaming. I'm crying. I'm, I'm pulling back the reins, the whole, the whole meeting, like, let's slow down and let's rethink this and get a second opinion. And, um, (laughs) I remember there was a, a man at the table and I, this, I'd carried on like this for probably two hours. And he finally looks across the table at me and he like throws his pen down and he goes, Jen, I just want to know when are, when are you planning to show up for your own life? we're all showing up for your life right now. You are the last one to the party. Like, are you, are you going to show up? Or are you just going to sit there and cry? And I was like, <sighs> it was very powerful. Wow. And, and I think this invitation to show up, um, as a leader, to show up with authority, um, mm. to show up with courage and it has, has been absolutely transformative for me. I I think with women specifically, I'd be interested to hear your opinion on this. Um, I think when it comes to women in leadership, specifically Christian leadership, um, there's this tendency and temptation and even expectation to be a little bit, oh, shucks. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, shucks. Who me? I'm just a girl, you know? And, mm-hmm. and, and that's sort of the approach that you see. It's very hand ringy, very shruggy, um, very, well, I don't know. Or I'll just, it's very timid. Um, it lacks power and authority. And I get it. I, I grew up in that environment where women were not invited into leadership. And mm-hmm. so, uh, they didn't have a voice, of, uh, of any sort of spiritual authority. Um, they just ran the fellowship hall. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I agree with you that I think women who are showing up for their own lives in every capacity, and that includes at a high leadership capacity is so important and so valuable. And it's so good for us. I mean, it's so good for culture. You know, when I think about our Um, Our culture at large, when I think about politics, um, when I think about the church, so let's look at all these huge systems that we are members of, you know, they have been male dominated since the beginning of time forever Mm -hmm. and, and not just male dominated, but a specific male voice, you know, the white male voice. Um, and I think how, uh, how anemic, how broken those systems have been all this time without the voices of women. They're offer, they're operating at half capacity. Um, they are leaving half the conversation completely out of it, which affects the way that they lead and the things that they um, legislate and the theology that they work into their churches. And so, our, our women's voices are so important right now, and everybody wins because of it. Everybody. It's good for the men. It's good for the women. It's good for our children who are watching. Um, it's good for our communities who we then are able to serve to such a full capacity. And it's good for our theology to add a woman's interpretation to what has only been a man's. And so I, I am, I'm now like, I'm proud. I'm honored to stand in a place of leadership. I take it so seriously. It is such a grave responsibility that never, 
I never don't think I know that. I know that this is big. I know it's important. I know it matters. It has real effects. And so it's thrilling for me to constantly pull up other chairs, telling other women, lead, lead, stand up on your own two feet. You are smart. You are capable. Um, you have permission to think for yourself. You have permission to step out. You have permission to dream and create and innovate and lead. And we're seeing it everywhere. And it's just so exciting. And it just feels like a wonderful time to be alive and a wonderful time to be a woman in community with other women. And so anytime I even get a thread, anybody in my world um, says anything that that resembles that scarcity mentality, that there is not enough to go around, mm -hmm. that her success diminishes mine, that if she takes her seat at the table, I'm going to have to pull mine away. And that's just a lie. It's just mm -hmm. a lie. And I, I, I try to defeat it everywhere. I see it everywhere. I hear it. I try to model constantly that, Oh no, there's always room for more. Always, always, always. We cannot possibly have too much leadership. We cannot have too much beauty. We cannot have too much wisdom. Um, we cannot mm -hmm. have too many books, too much literature, too much art, too much creativity, too much innovation. There's no such thing. The world needs it all. And so I love to see women take their place. I love it. It's so energizing. It's exciting to watch its effect on our our male counterparts who embrace mm -hmm. it and work with us. And we begin to collaborate together. And so, um, I'm no longer crying at the table <laughs> with a bunch of other people who are like, we're here for you. You're the only one that's not. Um, and it has been just the most amazing path of that. I never expected. Well, beautiful. I, you said the magic word, I cry on every podcast. So now I'm sitting here crying because I think when I look back on my life, What's so powerful about your journey is I think when I was 16, there was the three-legged stool of Sarah. I liked to lead. I liked politics. And I loved my church. But my yep. church told me that the other two legs were not appropriate for me. That's and right. so I think a lot of women, they pour it all into their faith. I didn't. I abandoned my faith because it told me that I couldn't do these other two parts that I knew were who I was. Yes. And so it's so you know, it's so life giving to be able to come back to that faith with women going, no, you don't have to, that, uh, uh, those are all three parts of you. And that is fine. And to see women doing that and like you and exercising that and talking about those things and leading and saying, that's not Jesus. That's their stuff. Leave it alone. That's right. Leave it behind. That's not, you don't have to pick. Cause I felt like I had to pick. Of course you did. I completely understand that. If you would have told me when I was 18 years old and beginning to sense sort of what was both a prophetic gift and a gift of teaching that I was going to stand in pulpits and preach and I, I would have just laughed in your face. That was not <laughs> permissible. I thought that the only option not... I had was to go and be starve and be Lottie Moon. I'm still traumatized by Lottie Moon. <laughs> I love that you pulled out oh Lottie Moon. Yes. Yes. All the Baptists in the world are like, yes, Lottie Moon. <laughs> um, I grew up just exactly the same. So, you know, it's a miracle that here we stand, right? Mm. Because th those gifts were not nurtured in us. They were yeah. not, they were not cherished. They mm -hmm. were not acknowledged. Um, we didn't have the impetus behind us of our faith communities to say, oh, this is what you're created for. This is going to mm -hmm. be so exciting yep. you know, to watch you go. And yet here we are. It's because Jesus loves us. It's because <laughs> he'll have his way. He will have his way. He doesn't need the permission of the patriarchy. He doesn't. 
So if he wants to call us forward, then forward we come. And Mm. I think he is doing a wondrous work in our culture right now with our women. I have a daughter who's about to graduate from high school and she is, I just, I like, I marvel. I can't believe it. Like she is so smart. She is so globally minded. Um, she's so self-aware and others aware. She cares about the earth. She cares about its people. I mean, I was not, you guys, I was nowhere near her when I was there. <laughs> what were we doing when we were 18? I don't know. I look at her and her peers and I think, here they come. Mm-hmm. Here they come. We, I, I said, Reese, I said to a group of people um, that I think the men ought to go ahead in the church and invite us to the table because the next generation of women is going to kick the door down. Mm-hmm. They are coming and they're not waiting for permission. Mm-hmm. They, they've already been given it. You know, they are rising up in their gifts, exactly who they are, all the legs of the stool. And so I'm thrilled about it. I am like, oh my gosh, hurry up and take the baton and you guys fix the world. Like (laughs) we're counting on you. Fix everything. We broke it. See if you can, you can put it back together. I'm going to go cross that Jesus doesn't need permission from the patriarchy. I'll be right back. (laughs) I I wish that I could find a way to help the men in my community, at least, hear this not as a taking from them, Mm -hmm. but as an insistence on allowing a mother's love into leadership. Mm, Because that's what we're talking about. That hand-wringy thing is a girl, right? But, But women who are really successful as leaders lead as mothers. And that has nothing to do with having children. I mean that as a verb, not as a noun. Yes. That you come in with that authority and that love and that sense of this institution that I'm leading or this faith that I'm leaving or this community of people are my children and that I want them to grow. I want them to reach their potential. I want to nourish them. I also want to call them out when they need to be called out. And that's so different from a father's leadership. And we so believe in the Christian community that children need both of those elements however they come, not biologically, but however they come, that we all need mothering and fathering. I don't know why it's so radical to say, so does the church. The church Mm -hmm. needs mothering and fathering. So does the government. So does the Supreme Court. I know. I love what you're saying. And to to your original um, hope that some of the men in your community can perceive women in church leadership from that angle, Not as a hostile takeover, um, but as a very, very important partnership um, that really completes the the body of Christ, frankly, and and, and leads it toward health. Um, What I would, what I think would be so hopeful for men in that position is if they would have the courage to look sideways at some communities who are already doing that. And to realize that there is this amazing sense of thriving um, in lots of faith spaces where men and women are um, partnering together and where women are sharing the pulpit and sharing the authority and sharing um, leadership. And it doesn't look like this sort of stereotypical women dominating at all. It looks like 
it looks like love and it looks like grace Mm -hmm. and it looks like societal transformation. It looks like wholeness and fullness. And so in those environments, what's your experience here? Um, to ask the women, to ask the people in the congregation, what's your experience of your church as you are led led by both men and women? And so um, I think that some of the like invented fear around that sort of shared space could be dissipated with a little bit of legwork just to look and see, no, this is what it actually looks like on the ground. It is beautiful. It is wonderful. And it's for the flourishing of the church. Is there anything we've not talked to you about that you want to say, Jen? No, this is such a good conversation. I'm so grateful to both of you for hosting it, for having it, for braving it, um, for holding what is such an important space in our in our faith culture right now, in our political culture right now. I'm just I think these are the I think these are the things that'll matter. Mm-hmm. I think these are the spaces that are going um, to deeply affect people and transform the way that we're relating to one another and the words that we're choosing, even the ideas that we are willing to hold. It's possible to hold two ideas in your head at once. Mm-hmm. And so I just I'm grateful to what you're doing and I am here for it. And um, I, I just just want you to know that I see what you're doing. I see you. Um, I see what you value. I see what you care about and your posture. And I just think, oh, you're doing your part. You really are. You're doing your part and it matters. And people are listening and they're, they're emulating what they see here. And so thank you for doing it. Thank you for, you know what? You could have picked easier things to talk about. (laughs) You really could have. You really could have. You guys, it's not too late, but, um, but you didn't, you kind of went right at it. It's important. It just makes me grateful for you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for your leadership. I mean, thank you for standing in this space that we think is so important. The overlap between faith and politics. We got to stop trying to avoid it. This is important for our country. It's important for our churches. It's important for our lives. And I mean, your leadership in that area has been phenomenal. It has been. We, we uh, are so honored that you spent this time with us. And uh, when you're out in the wilderness, know that Sarah and Beth are out there They're with worth, you yeah. and rooting you on and, um, and so grateful for your example. That's great, girls. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a great day. We hope you enjoyed that interview. We hope you laughed and cried along with us. Um, We can't thank Jen enough for sitting down and sharing her heart with us. We really enjoyed it. And next up, we'll be talking about what's on our mind outside politics. What are you thinking about outside of politics, Sarah? I saw the Avengers Infinity Wars, and I hated it. I'll accept Captain America's new sexy beard. I'm here for that part. Otherwise, hate it. I hear you have a political theory about this film. So spoilers here. If you have not seen Avengers Infinity War you know, just turn us down for a minute. So I could not help but think about Thanos as Donald Trump. Thanos Mm. is like the villain of the Infinity Wars. And the Infinity Stones as like principled Republicans. And you kind of look at each one, you're like, surely he's not going to get this one. He's got (laughs) those. He's not going to get any more. He's not going to fill up his little little glove. They can't all go in there. Oh, he did. There there goes Paul Ryan. There goes that one. And then at the end of the movie, half the population just disintegrates. Of the universe. And I want to talk about that in a second. But people just start disintegrating and i thought that's kind of like everybody abandoning congress like (laughs) there goes jeff flake goodbye bob corker anyway 
I just couldn't help but project kind of my sadness about the state of the Republican Party onto this movie. That was very depressing. It's like it such is. A, it, do I not take say, your though, kids to see this movie re- legitimately. Do not. It just is too wait depressing. Wait for the next one. Like wait for the next one when it all gets fixed because it is really a ballsy thing to make a comic book superhero movie over two hours. In which evil triumphs. Yeah. Right. Because that's what I got so so mad about. Like three-fourths of the way the movie, I'm like, hold up. Is there another one of these? And Nicholas was like, yeah, they already filmed it. And I'm like, this is crap. I went because I'm, listen, in the Donald Trump era, we need a good old-fashioned superhero movie where the bad guys lose. All right? And so that's what I was, I was ready. I was like, let's get the gang together. Let's defend the universe. I'm psyched. Let's do this. I was so, I was, they started showing up. I'm like, yes, love that person. Love that threat. mm -hmm, Love that superhero. Love her. Love her. And then I'm like, hold on, wait a minute. What's going to happen here? And then I kind of like started to put the pieces together. And like, of course, yeah, I think Black Panther's going to be fine. They made way too much money off that movie to be killing him off. They're going to come back, I'm sure, whatever, time stone. I don't know. But I just, you know, that's why I don't love Star Wars is because like I need an ending. I'm a completist. I need something to happen and it to be over. And I guess maybe if I'd like known that this was going to one of two, I would have been a little less cranky about it. But I was ready for a good old fashioned beat him up, defend the universe, good guys win situation. Not what happens. It is. It definitely feels like being in a comic book in this movie. They have put so much in it, so many people that it's just like it's just little vignettes. You just yeah. jump scene to scene to scene, and it's kind of fun in that way. Like I enjoyed it. I actually think it's a really smart movie. I think it has a lot to say. I think the idea that the villain is casting himself as being merciful is really mm-hmm. super interesting and says a lot about the way that religion gets perverted. And I mean, there's a lot in this movie that I loved. Like, I thought it was really, really smart. And I also was like, oh, my God, nothing matters. I don't <laughs> what happens when you when you end a movie this way? Well, and because, you know, they did a really good job of melding all the different tones of the film. My husband made that point. I think it's really right. Like, there's, it's a very different feeling from, like, Captain America to Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. And they kind of did a good job of pulling all those different pieces together in a cohesive whole. I just wish it was actually a cohesive whole and not part one of two. Um, I really see, I did not think that was your political theory about Thanos because it's like it's like this sort of vaguely climate change situation going on. Mm-hmm. Like he's concerned about the the weight of all these people on the planets themselves, which I thought was kind of interesting. I'm like, hmm. Um, but yeah, I left it and I was just mad. And I don't want to have to wait all the way till next May to watch the good guys win, which I'm sure they will. I'm trying to be less cranky about it. As long as Captain America keeps that sexy beard, I guess I'll be okay. Chad and I have a million theories about how it's all going to be unwound and how it's going to be fine because Doctor Strange made his decision after viewing all the possible outcomes and seeing the one in which they won. So it's going to be okay. I have to say I love the way that Marvel – blends this keen interest in super futuristic technology with a real appreciation of mythology and sort Mm -hmm. of spirituality. I think it's so – when you talked about blending everything together, I love how Marvel does that. That was my favorite part of Black Panther. Yeah. Uh, You have Wakanda as this – really technological and mystical place all at once. I think that's awesome and and really like a good blueprint for us socially. So I was really into this movie. I was just also taken by it. I didn't cry because 
I cried all the tears that I have in my body over a baby bird that died at my house this week. This family of birds lived in a dead chrysanthemum on our patio. The mama bird had made this really nice little nest. There were baby birds in the nest. I walked outside with my dog one day and I found a baby bird that was dead on the patio. And then I found another one. And so I picked up the first one in leaves. I took it over to a tree. I said a little prayer for it. I was like, you know, Godspeed, baby bird. I'm so sorry. And then I pick up the second one and its mouth opens and closes and opens and closes and it moves. It's like it's trying to tell me it's alive. I sobbed. And yelled for Chad, and I was like, what do we do? And we put it back in the nest. Yeah, because that whole thing about human smelling, that's not, that's not an urban legend. It's not true. Right. And also, I hadn't touched it. I, had, I was holding it in leaves, so I mm-hmm. hadn't actually touched it. So we put it back in the nest. I see the mommy bird coming and going. Also, I see the mommy bird, like, doing a distress cry. Like, she, she sat up on one of the chairs on our patio and chirped louder than I've ever heard her chirp. I'm going to get, I'm going to cry just thinking about it. Like you could tell that she was looking for that other baby bird. Aww. Right. And so, so we put the other one back in the nest. I watched, she's coming and going, she's bringing food. I'm like, okay, it's going to be fine. And then the next day I found the other baby bird again, again, again. and it was up kind of high. It was like on top of our hot tub. So I think that probably she brought it out. There was really no other way for it to get where it was. So anyway, I didn't have any tears left for Infinity Wars because I have been so heartbroken about these birds, which I know is totally irrational. It's not irrational. We dedicate this episode to those baby birds. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I I have been posting about this on Twitter, and I really am grateful for how many of you guys care about this story with me (laughs) and get why it's so heartbreaking. It's just really, I I have to tell you, it was really something for me to pick up first a dead baby bird and then a baby bird that was alive and to just hold those things like in my hands. It's been a lot. It's been a lot. I feel like Jen Hatmaker will say a prayer for the baby bird if we ask her to. Thank you, Jen and everyone. I mean... It's nature is a harsh and beautiful and complex thing, which I think is what the Avengers were trying to tell us as well, just to wrap it all together. Ugh, wish they could have told us in a whole movie instead of making us wait a year. It's fine, whatever. Okay, thank you for joining us for our amazing interview with Jen Hatmaker, the White House Correspondent Center, Baby Birds. It's been a very intense emotional episode. Thanks for sticking with us, guys. Until next week, keep it new up, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Support for Pantsuit Politics comes from our listeners. We especially appreciate our executive producers, George Niedermeyer, Tracy Pidoff, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. Our theme music was written and performed by Dante Lima. To support Pantsuit Politics, please visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. Subscribe and leave a rating and review in the Apple Podcast Player and follow us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic and Facebook and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics. Mm-hmm.